there's a special place where everyone is friendly, where magic fills the faces of children with laughter, and the elders smile and wink at the cleverness of a trick well done. But this is not that place. We escape the unendurable however we can. Groovy. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. This is Dragon Skull Radio. Okay. Um, can you hear me that napkin there? The the napkin. The no. It, well, look at your feet. Don't put your feet... Uh, here, pick that up. That's important. Well, I can't read it. I'm driving. Here, just... Well, yeah, it got a little wet. Okay? Um, I don't know. Um, could be a three, a five, an eight. Maybe a six. It's kind of round. I, well, I don't know. We're we're definitely in the right area, and Walt said this would be easy to find. We'll just um, keep driving. Um. Oh, hey, that uh, that deck came in. Yeah, that one that I uh, was looking at, the Kanzari deck. K O N X A R I, I think. Oh, yeah, look it up on your phone, sure. That's fine. Um, it's Kanzari.com. K-O-N-X-A-R-I.com. Ed Solomon actually turned me on to these. And it looks as though they are intended. They, they weren't necessarily designed with magicians in mind. Uh, they were designed as a way to uh, sort of supplement ways of uh, contacting spirits, uh, working with sort of a pseudo-seance kind of game. I guess you'd say the Ouija board for the new millennia. Uh, it comes with a couple of packs of cards. I guess it's about a hundred cards overall. I just got them uh, pretty recently. Eighty-eight. It's eighty-eight cards. That's what it is. Um, and they have spooky little pictures on them uh, that are sort of the modern horror chic kind of thing. Uh, and some of the cards uh, are people, figures. Uh, some of them are incidents, such as murder, suicide, accidents. Um, there are different places, uh, uh, like a lake, a bedroom. Um, no, there is no billiard room. Thank you. Uh, but various combinations of things that I guess you would say could tell a story about a death that had occurred. And in the way they suggest you use them, the idea is to lay out the cards much like you would for, a, I guess, a stylized tarot reading. Uh, you lay them out in a particular pattern. And then as the cards lay out, they're supposed to tell you something about the spirits that you're trying to communicate with. Uh, and the idea is that it's uh, sort of an automatic writing kind of thing and that the spirits ought to be able to guide you to the right cards uh, to tell the story. 
but they're interesting. They're interesting. The cards feel like cards. They're fairly well made. I don't know how well they would stand up to regular use. I haven't had them that long. Uh, my inclination is to not do a whole lot of fancy shuffling or anything like that, to treat them with the same respect that I would a deck of tarot cards. But what an interesting crop to bring into play. I've been asked to uh, do something for magicians uh, using uh, cards. And everyone knows I'm a big card guy. Uh, but I've got an idea using these Kanzari cards where what I'm going to do is to have uh, an artifact of some kind, uh, something related to a, a news story and have the news story sealed up. And I'll introduce the cards, I'll explain the game, and that because there are so many people in the room, we're not going to be able to play it the way that we normally would. But we'll we'll do an approximation with uh, with uh, individuals with volunteers, and I'll have them touch the backs of a few cards uh, so that they stick out a deck. We'll take those out. We'll set them aside with somebody to hang on to those, and then we'll let somebody read the news story. And piece by piece, the cards that those people pulled out are going to match some important element of the story, which I'm hoping will be very spooky and very strange. Um, but we'll have to see how it goes. Um, it should be around here someplace. Well, it's it's got a... Well, yeah, all these places look the same, I know. It's, um... But... Oh, hang on. My uh, my phone's ringing in my pocket here. Um, there. Here we go. Keys. Oh, there we go. Hello. Hello, Chris. How are you? Hey, Joe Cabral. How are you doing? Very well, very well. How are you? I'm excellent. I understand you're going to Walt Anthony's tonight. Yes, yes. He's going to, um, I'm supposed to go meet him over at Eugene Points' old place, and we're going to uh, learn a little bit what it was like to hang out with Eugene. I'm kind of excited about it. We're a little lost, though. Oh, you, <laughs> you ought to be. It's a wonderful place. Oh, well, I wanted, to, I wanted to call and let everyone out there know that um, Walt Anthony is the honored guest for this year's gathering. Oh, how awesome! It's not on that the website yet. It's, it's not anywhere. You, you've learned it. You hear it first. Walt <laughs> and I have talked, of course. You know, he's such a, such a great guy. Uh, a few years back, uh, we had... Uh, had talked about having him as the honored guest um, a few years ago, but um, Cardor wasn't um, doing so well. He was having some health issues, so sure. uh, Walt, Walt graciously uh, postponed it uh, so we could um, so Cardor would, would would be able to make it. And as you know, a few years 
uh, if Harder hasn't made it, but he's hoping to come up this year for the, you know, it's the 20th, 20th anniversary, and oh, Walt, yeah. will be the, Walt will be the honoree. I That's just so wanted awesome. to share that with you guys out there and uh, let you know and uh, tell Walt hello. We'll be talking, he and I. We have a lot, lot, lot to plan. Uh, there's going to be quite a few events this year. Naturally, Friday night is Fright Night, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be some bizarre comedy. There'll be uh, sideshow events. There, there probably will be about three shows this year. So it's going to be oh, something excellent. to behold. That is excellent. Well, I'm sure looking few. forward to it. I'm a relative yeah, newcomer to ICBM, as you know, but... Uh, I, I immediately felt at home, and I just can't wait to get back there. I miss you guys already. Yeah, we had a we had a great time last year with Eugene and uh, Max and the gang, and uh, just wanted to share that with you. Um, give Walt my best, and tell him I'll talk to him soon. I will. I will, and that's that's great news. Thank you for letting me know. I will tell everyone. I promise. Yes, Dragon Skull exclusive. <laughs> Carl is going to be so excited. <laughs> well, you have you have a wonderful night, and we'll talk to you soon again. I have a lot of preparations to do. No doubt, no doubt, and uh, it's great to talk to you, Joe. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Have a fright. Have a frightful night. <laughs> you do too. We'll see ya. I'm sure you will. Bye bye. <laughs> bye. Oh wow, that is so cool. Walt didn't even tell me that. Well, that is very very exciting. So we are. Ooh. What color is that? The the Walt. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're looking for. That, put that napkin away. We don't need that. All right. Now, just pull in here. There should be a parking spot. There we go, right there. And here we are. All right. Wow, this place is... Oh, hey. Uh, how you doing? Yeah. Good. Good to see you. Um, go through here. And, um... secluded when you get into here. That one could use a little cleaning. It's not bad. Let me said, let me look at my notes here. Okay, so, there it is. He said to go to the
up here on the on this side over here. The one with the screen door. Excellent. And he is supposed to be waiting for us. And it looks like the door is open. Just call inside. Hello? Chris. Hey, you made well, it. I did. Uh, do you mind if we come in? Uh, yeah, but don't let the ghosts out. I'll, I'll tell you about that. Okay. So welcome to the cave. Oh, my goodness. This is cool. Yeah, goodness has nothing to do with it in Gene's case. <laughs> wow, this is crazy. Now, now how talking long about crazy, since Gene's youth, he's had a terrible, terrible, terrible case of agoraphobia. Can't leave his house. And as he got older, it got worse and worse and worse. By the time he was in his mid-30s, he couldn't hardly walk out the door, which is why I wanted to close the screen door. It would really spook him out if he knew the outside was coming in. In fact, towards the end of his life, neighbors had to bring him his groceries. He just, you know, it was the cave, and that were, that was his solitary place. Wow. Now, how long has it been since Gene was here? Um, well, the magic time when he was here was from 1930 until 2002, and then he went back to his other planet. Yeah. Uh, we can talk more about the other planet later. <laughs> I bet we will. Uh, um, I, I assume that not everybody knows about Gene, right? Well, yeah. I I have a few of his books. And I have talked to some people who knew him, and I, I read some of the articles. I, I think Gene is a, a definite presence for anyone who's interested in, in bizarre magic. Uh, but you really only get just a, a tiny little taste of of what he must have been like. Uh, everyone I've talked to say, oh, gosh, there's so much to tell you. And then they'll tell me a tidbit. Uh, so uh, I can imagine that, that most people have just a tiny piece of it. Well, Gene how, would tell you that he is the overwhelming top movement in the bizarre magic genre. Uh, he was obviously not shy. Uh, bizarre magic actually uh, began, as we know it, in the late 60s. Um, there's always been bizarre magic. There's always been, you know, the spooky and the storytelling. But the resurgence was in the 60s with Charles Cameron and Tony called Doc Shields. And then from there, to develop some really significant artists, uh, punks, Tony Andrusi, Carl Heron, who we know as Brother Shadow, Sam Sharp, who also uh, suffered from agoraphobia, by the way, uh, our own Ed Solomon, Kristen Shellman, uh, of course, Bob Neal, and at the top of the list, according to him, Eugene points. Oh, and I, I think I pointed out to you a couple of other days that uh, it's spelled Poink, and everybody calls him Poink, but historically, and he answered to Poink, but historically it's pronounced Points. Like Points. I've been practicing that. <laughs> now, I still don't have it down. I still, I still call him other things. Well, let me show you around the cave. Oh, Let me wow. show you around a little. It's, I mean, is it okay if I touch anything? or, or um... uh, Sure. Uh, you can play with the toys. You'll notice there's a lot of Cracker Jack toys and Dime Store <laughs> toys. And, uh, Look at the that. Odd thing, they're, they're mixed in with uh, 
well, treasures. Uh, here, grab a seat. Oh, sit carefully on the sofa. Don't move the sheet. Okay. You want to see what's under there. And don't oh, put it on the first. screen. What? Well, um... Comfy? It kind of it kind of loves you up, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it certainly does. It's been loving for probably decades and decades and decades. Um, you'll notice over there the mannequin in a little fresh ma- French maid's outfit holding a silver tray. She's our uh, hostess. She was always Jean's hostess, and I can't remember her name. I wish I could. And then from the sublime maid to the ridiculous, there's the cardboard cutout of Zena. Who, uh, oh, look at that. <laughs> yeah. He was in love with her. Oh, wow. Lucy Lawless. Do you see the, the tapestries all around here on the wall? I was looking at those. Those are those are very cool. Are those reproductions? Or, no, no. Or? Uh, what Jean explained, they're, they're ghostly tapestries, and I've never seen anything like it. And they're huge. They're huge. But what they yeah. are back in the medieval days, before the women would start on a tapestry, uh, they would stretch out this huge piece of cloth and then in uh, vegetable dyes paint the pattern on it and then mm-hmm. use the pattern kind of like paint by number to do the uh, embroidery. But these are actually antique from, you know, the 1700s, 1600s uh, and were never uh, tapestryized. So you're looking through them and they look like ghosts. It's really. It was one of the things that really hit me the first time I visited Jean. These are these are actual medieval tapestry blanks, basically yep. patterns. That's what they are. Oh my! And that's just sublime and ridiculous. There's all these precious things over there. Is his prized mummy's hand? I think I think there's a picture of that on Dragon Skull, uh, from an actual mummy. And uh, do you see that huge thing, that, that huge, huge rock? It's like as big as a coffee table. Well, yeah. That, yeah, that is actually a dinosaur's footprint. That's a fossil, a real dinosaur fossil. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Now, do you see those <laughs> weird paintings on the wall? Uh, now, is that all his work there? Uh, well, kind of. Uh, the, the big ones are his work, and uh, they're absolutely wonderful. But those little ones are reproductions from famous artists like uh, Rembrandt and Da Vinci and Picasso and Matisse. And uh, Jean called them his pauper paintings. So let me explain why they look so odd. Uh, he knew that people couldn't afford a great piece of art, and uh, okay. he did these as he did these as reproductions. And uh, then he took the reproduction and sorted uh, maybe a dozen pieces. And that little bit of frame around there is what's left of the frame after they were cut. And he figured, well, people could at least afford a tiny piece of a masterpiece. So <laughs> he left me, I think, you know, one-twelfth of a Matisse. Oh. So that's what those are. <laughs> Now, see, that is one of the things that I always enjoyed about Eugene Points, uh, and and a lot of the people who really motivate me in the directions of bizarre and theatrical magic, is they were like they were like Tolkien, 
they had this universe that they created with all these little details and all these little rules about how things worked. And then they kept to the rules of their universe. And and that kind of thing, you know, someone couldn't afford an entire painting, but, but they could afford, afford a twelfth of a Matisse. I mean, that that is... That is weird enough to be true. <laughs> yeah, and everything in his reality was real, and everything out that door, which he couldn't go up out of, was fantasy. Wow. So, oh, watch out. Here here comes one. Do, do you see the, the, that fluffy thing? As big as a tumbleweed? That's one of his dust bunnies. Is that what that I thought that was like a, a cat. Uh, no, no, uh, he couldn't see well, and he was a little lazy, and the housekeeping got out of hand and stayed out of hand. Oh, wow. And I as I told you, his ghost is floating around here. Uh, who knows where he'll land. Uh, he was a very gracious host, very gracious. Yeah. Ooh. Oh. So, did I hear something moving in the kitchen? Is there someone um, else here? Uh, uh, well, there's always spirits here. There's the madam, dude, and sometimes the twins. Dude, dude, look, look. What is that? Uh, that's a shadow moving by that old Remington. But there's there's like a tray floating around in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, those are the hors d'oeuvres. Stay away from the hors d'oeuvres. See, Jean was a very, gosh. very gracious host. And he always served his guests hors d'oeuvres. But, you know, I said his eyesight wasn't that great, and he was also on a very, very limited budget. He barely had enough to live on with Social Security. And so he would make these little hors d'oeuvres like bologna wrapped around olives or uh, a little dab of cream cheese on a corner of toast, and uh, they were kept around much, much too long. You see that thing there? It's either very new cheese or very old meat. So I, it, it was... A lot of those hors d'oeuvres got shoved in our pockets because uh, I, I don't know if you'd survive eating one. Well, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to cut back, uh, to be honest. But but um, thanks, thanks. I yep. really appreciate it. There's that shadow over by the Remington again. I I, I wonder if that could be our guy. I don't know. Now I'm looking here. There's there's some of the toys you're talking about. Now what's this old typewriter do? Well. That type, uh, when Gene comes back here once in a while, uh, especially if he's feeling gracious or upset, he'll he'll get in touch with us that way. Kind of like um, his crystal ball. And yeah. I think that's what the shadow is doing on there. Oh, check that out. Oh, wow. Okay, got it. Yep, that's Is that Jean. like remote control? It, uh, it's uh, psychic control, I guess. That's what he typed everything on before he got his computer. We'll talk about the computer later. Oh, he wants what, to start at the What does it say? Okay. When he was a child, he saw Blackstone, the Great Blackstone. And he appalled a lot of people by telling him that he hated the Great Blackstone. He said he was very <laughs> mean. He went on stage to help, and Blackstone grabbed his shoulder to control him and almost broke his shoulder blade and said, you're going to do what I say, kid, or you're going to get it. And uh, he was abusive to his rabbits, according to Gene. And Gene said he got into magic, not because of Blackstone, but kind of the antithesis, to spite Blackstone and do it right. Okay. 
Okay. So that's 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 one you know fun thing. That's where he started. Um, he um, wrote, I guess, his big connection with magic. He performed, but then after his uh, what he would term his dull marriage, he returned to magic, and uh, he did a lot of the early uh, illustrations for Genie Magazine back when the Larsons were running it. Uh, years and years and years of wonderful, clever illustrations. Uh-huh. And uh, that lasted for many years. And he also wrote several early books. Uh, the first was in 1981. It was called Imagination, the Illusions of Gene Points. Mickey Hayes published that. Then mm-hmm. 83 came Illusions for Princes and Paupers. And like the title said, there were very, very expensive illusions that you could build, and then others you could build in your garage for under ten dollars. Mm-hmm. Those show up once in a while on eBay, but not often. Well, and and I remember one in particular, I believe that was from that one. Uh, just the the ideas were off the wall. There was one where where an artist came out and created a a piece of artwork with garbage, which then walked off of the canvas. And and became this this woman made of garbage, uh, very very twisted. I liked it. <laughs> yep, yep. And th- that was it. They were wild. Uh, they were innovative, not only for their time but for today. People don't do things like that. And his excuse was he wasn't of this world. Uh, he said, in truth, my genesis was in another galaxy within another universe, which presently flourishes within another dimension, and that's where Gene is when he's not at that Remington typewriter. Um, And he had the We Church of the Chocolate Chip Cookie, which was uh, based in that other universe and brought here. Uh, He was diabetic, so his rules Uh were to give an offering to the church, chocolate chip cookies, sugar-free, and no nuts. That was your traditional uh, tithe to the church. Uh, If you heeded him and got him those cookies, salvation was yours. When the ships came to... uh, bring you back to his planet, and for those who did not, uh, they ended up in magic shops, I guess. Wow, I guess so. I guess so. Now, now look how, out how the screen you... door. I'm sorry? Look out the screen door. Do, do you see that other door kind of kitty corner there? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the name Lily Sancerre? Lily Sancerre. I don't know. That may be before my time. It um, could have been. I, <laughs> uh, she, the name is mentioned, actually, in Rocky Horror uh, Picture Show in the movie. She was one of the great early strippers. And, uh, okay. Uh, she was up there with um, Sally Rand and Gypsy Rose Lee. She was, like, one of the big three, uh, mostly in the 40s and 50s. And she had a short-acting career with the help of her lover at the time, Howard Hughes, did a few films. And her final years were like in obscurity and seclusion with her cats. And she lived right there next to Jean. And sometimes he'd say that he'd had an affair with her, and other times he'd say they were just good friends. But um, there were some notable and famous people in this uh, little courtyard here. Wow. Huh. That's that's pretty wild. Uh oh. I, um, I think he wants to tell us about Hepburn. Oh, okay. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh 
Jean wrote several books, and one was a novel called Ali Ali Oxenfree, and it came to the attention of Catherine Hepburn, and she decided she wanted to do a movie, which was called, surprise, Ali Ali Oxenfree. Mm-hmm. And uh, she telephoned him and said, Mr. Poins, I really like your, your book here. I want to do a movie. Come to my house. And he, Eugene was in a pickle because he couldn't leave his apartment. And he explained this to Miss Hepburn. And she said, oh, don't be a silly. I'll send a car for you. You'll just have to get in the limousine. And he explained he could not do it. And she said, oh, you're just a, a silly wuss. And she was very impatient with him. And he insisted he couldn't leave, couldn't go through that screen door. And she finally said, I will be there in a half hour. And sure enough, really? Catherine, she sat right where you're sitting. Oh, my gosh. And the I sofa the was no newer then. Ass like it's grabbing mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, they fell in love with each other. Um, the, the movie... Uh, wasn't one of her great movies, but it did win a bronze medal at the Venice Film Festival. And he thought a lot of her, and she thought a great deal of him. Wow. He had real nerve. He had real judgment. He had a great artistic sense. He had a wonderful sense of enthusiasm. And he was excited by the business, which I think is the most exciting business in the world. Did you yep. hear that? And he raved and raved about her. Oh, he says that it was his proudest moment to show his art to Catherine Hepburn, and he presented her with one of his paintings. Thank you, Jean. Wow. Um, That's amazing. As I said, Jean was not modest. And uh, once he was on the Shadow Digest, which we can talk about a little later, he took on a uh, title of NLT, which was National Living Treasure. He was the (laughs) National Living Treasure of Magic. And then after a while, a plus sign appeared, and then another plus and another plus. And after a while, he was NLT with like six or eight pluses after him. And uh, after his demise, we voted to make him the National Legendary Treasure rather than the living treasure. So uh, he had typed that on there. He was He's very proud of his title. <laughs> That's funny. That's awesome. Oh, the computer. He was okay. best friends with Larry White. And, and of course... You know, you know Larry White from Shadow Digest and MUM and all those other things, right, Chris? Sure. Fantastic man. Again, a great thinker, a great friend of Bizarre Magic. And uh, he and Gene were inseparable, even though they were 3,000 miles apart. And uh, the more reclusive Eugene got, the more Larry wanted to help. And he sent him an old, junk, refurbished computer. And that literally changed Gene's life overnight. Suddenly he could be in contact with uh, the entire world without going through the screen door. And uh, that's how he got onto the Shadow Digest. And I I think it saved his life for many years. Wow. I think I see the printer sitting over there. Do you want to talk a tiny bit about what the Shadow Digest is for the people that don't know and how 
Uh, Brother Shadow got that going? I I suppose so. Uh, I I came into the Shadow Digest fairly recently. Ed Solomon uh, pointed me in that direction. Uh, but I I honestly know very little about how it began. I assume it was just like most of the uh, the electronic mailing lists uh, that someone set up a forum for a discussion and and uh, you know it it went on its merry way. Uh, well, it started actually before computers uh, by uh, letter, round robin no letters, months and months. Uh, Brother Shadow had a small group of. Uh, magicians that he shared it with and brought in and with the advent of the computer it went online and once Gene got there uh, a bunch of us just stirred up all kinds of trouble uh, it became a um, place for guerrilla theater for an enormous amount of improv and uh, I, I'm sorry that it doesn't have that life anymore um, several of us with uh, Bruce Barnett uh, the moderators uh, permission had a lot of aliases, and we'd argue with ourselves. Uh, Gene would call me and say, oh, I'm going to start another war with Larry White. Here's what you have to write tomorrow. And then he and Larry would talk for hours coming up with these elaborate plots, which upset some people. They became online and mortal enemies and said vile things, and people would defend one and then the other. And then Eugene would turn on the people who defended him and make them out to be stupid. So there was incredible drama going on, which a lot of people were totally uh, buying into. They didn't realize that it was theater. And uh -huh. um, uh, it would be great to get a call from Gene with the, the next uh, chapter of what was going to go on there and how he's going to annoy the world. And, uh, of course, one of the uh, great creations was Madame Grodznoya, a great teacher of the black arts, and uh, uh -huh. high class, medium, first class. And uh, Grodnoya, you had to be very patient to read Madame Grodnoya's posts because they were written with its dialect and uh, it was very hard to uh, decipher them, but they were worth it. They were great. And uh, uh, after several plots with her, she decided to run for president of her beloved United States of America. Um, Larry jumped in, with Jean's permission, of course, and said that uh, Grodznoya was leaving Eugene forever and coming to live on the East Coast and become his lover. And people <laughs> fought back and forth. And my role was to defend Gene and say, no, 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 Grodznoya's right here. I just saw her last week. I met her. And uh, at one point, uh, I had an actress friend who had bright red curly hair and was of the right age and looked like Madame Grodznoya would have. And we gave her great, huge gold hoop earrings and a uh, gypsy's bandana and dressed her up in, with, you know, tambourines and everything else and dragged this poor woman down to L.A. and took pictures of her with Gene. And he insisted that they get into bed together. And uh, there were pictures of them cuddling and him being very inappropriate with her. And there might be some of those on Dragon Skull, too. And I then saw we had a few pictures that, that were probably that. Um. <laughs> We had proof. We could say, see, the madam is with Jean. She's not with Larry on the other side of the country. And uh, the other great creation of his was these strange-eyed twins, uh, mm -hmm. who defy description. They were two little girls about 10 years old, and he had a, a old woodcut that he said were, were the sisters. And they would do these horrible, dreadful, evil things, uh, terrible things. 
immoral and cruel and uh, murderous, and all in the name of being sweet, innocent little girls. They they were wonderful. And he sent some of us th- this woodcut, and uh, I have a funny story about mine. Uh, there was a knock on my door, and apparently I'd gotten a, a big manila envelope, and a neighbor put it under the door for me. But I didn't know it was the neighbor who knocked, and the uh, back of the envelope was towards me, so it was plain. There was no address, and uh-huh. I didn't realize it was from the mail. And I opened it up, and there was a picture of the twins uh, with an autograph of me, and I freaked out. I didn't know. I, I, be, I, I believed in the twins. I believed in the twins. That's awesome. Now, something we haven't talked about yet, but I'm very curious now. How did you connect with Eugene Points? Um, he was a, a very lonely man, which, which I guess happens when you don't leave your house. And uh, he used to say, uh, my life is not a happy one. And that was partly a, a joke, a punchline, but it was also true on a level that his life was a very lonely one. And uh, a couple of us would get together, um, uh, Tim Converse and Michael Mosier and I, and uh, we'd make the trip. I, I'd go from San Francisco down to L.A. and spend, oh, maybe a half day with him, and we'd just talk about everything and avoid the hors d'oeuvres and avoid the dust bunnies. And uh, that's how we got to be close. And uh, I'm very proud to have every one of his books uh, autographed to me. And I have a wonderful story about Journeys into Grey. Uh, people on the Shadow Network and Magic Cap, they are always talking about it. And, uh, uh, a friend of mine turned me on to that book, and, and that, that, that completely revolutionized my view of what people were talking about when they said Bizarre Magic. I, I, I love that book. I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite books. Um, it was supposed to be part of a trilogy. Uh, there was Journeys into Gray, followed by Journeys into Black, which is even more evil, really unabashedly evil. He was afraid to release it. And then third was Journeys into White, which was kind of the redemptive book of the three. And the one was almost finished, and the other one just notes. And people say, will they ever be released? And I, I think even the notes are lost. Um, I am not in touch and don't know how to contact his relatives and if anybody has copies it's probably them I know his publisher doesn't have any so uh, Journeys into Grey is about all we have and it just about gave Eugene a heart attack the books came back from the printer it was probably the proudest day of his life and he looked at the cover which was supposed to have an engraving on it and it was blank it was just a grey cover that said The Practitioner Journeys into Grey and he was furious. Where was his illustration? So uh, Mary Tomish, the publisher, sent the entire kit and caboodle back to the publisher, or to the printers, and said, correct this. And he reprinted all the dust jackets, sent them back, and he had no reason to reset the type. Everything was perfect except the illustration. But we realized within a few days that practitioner was spelled wrong. The title of the book was spelled wrong. Uh, Eugene used more and more colorful expletives. They were sent back again, and the third try, the cover came out correctly. And I, I think I'm the only person I know anyway that has all three covers, and each one autographed by Gene with more and more violent and vile language on it, the more upset he got. 
Oh, okay. Um, he wants to talk about, uh, wait, let me look at that. The spelling still isn't great. Oh, <laughs> the memorial. After his passing, and of course he didn't die, he just went back to his planet, um, we held two memorial services, one at the Magic Castle and another at the ICBM, the uh, Inner Circle of Bizarre Magic. And uh, so there's a West Coast and an East Coast, and it was the first time that uh, his Borden Bunnies was presented. Um, <laughs> he used to have uh, uh, bets that uh, challenging him and his friends to come up with uh, wonderful, bizarre presentations for classics of magic that couldn't possibly have one. And the Borden Bunnies was his story of Lizzie Borden and the whole, you know, gave her mother 40 wax illustrated with um, bloody hippity hop rabbits. And he, I think he was very proud, uh, looking out from his little box of ashes, that that finally got done on the stage. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. Now, I will tell you one of the things that I remember about Eugene Points um, was I knew that he had died. And I knew that he had a great deal to do with Bizarre Magic. And he continued to run a column in the Linking Ring for a very long time after his death. To the point that it started to confuse me. I could understand having an article or two piled up that you're going to go ahead and publish posthumously. But he ran for, what, a, a year or more Publishing articles after he had died. I'm not sure, but I think it was more like two or three years. Um, yeah. He piled up a bunch of articles. He, he wrote every day, uh, religiously wrote every day, and uh, he came up with some very controversial and vitriolic ones. And he didn't mm-hmm. want to die. And he certainly didn't want anyone to think he was dead after his passing. And he arranged with Linking Ring to continue his column long, long, long after he'd left this planet. And um, people would write into Linking Ring irate and angry and you know, demanding this man be taken off of the staff and how dare he. And they got to write, write back and say, you know, he, he died in 2002. And uh, I, I'm sure uh, the typewriter there was just typing furiously when he found out that they'd run out of his uh, articles to print. Are you saying something else about that? Oh, yeah. He says he's going to have a couple other books coming out. If he can get back to this planet, he's going to finish up the Practitioner Trilogy, even if it kills him. (laughs) Kind of redundant there. And uh, (laughs) wait, another message is coming through. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, okay, I'm a little embarrassed by that. He says that uh, a book that he's very proud of isn't one he wrote, but one I wrote, because there's a uh, chapter about him in it. It's uh, my book, Tales of Enchantment, which came out this year and is published by Leaping Lizards Publishing. I have number 84. Great. There was yeah a hundred uh, hardcover 
uh, limited edition, uh, autographed and numbered. And then uh, there's a paper-bound version uh, out, and that's unlimited. And um, Eugene inspired a lot of that. It was uh, meant to be my legacy to the magic community, the way uh, the practitioner was his legacy, uh, one of his many, many legacies. So uh, I'm very proud that uh, Eugene liked it. I'm not sure what limited number he got. Maybe he got 100 out of the 100. <laughs> um, one of the things about Eugene... Uh, and, and his approach to magic. The practitioner is is a wonderful title for the the ideas that he put at least in my head. And it was the idea that the magician was more than than simply someone uh, performing some amusements. Uh, there was there was an idea of these sort of shadowy edges that happened around. The magician. The magician was a practitioner. It was not a part-time thing. It was it was something that he would show people a, a public glimpse of certain aspects of it. But in reality, the the life and the work of the magician went a lot deeper than anyone ever knew. And and he portrayed that extremely well in his book. Uh, with with the little story he wove in between the effects he would tell you. Uh, the essays, uh, where, where most people write essays nowadays, uh, you know, about a particular topic, uh, he had this story going on that had had the points he wanted to make woven into the story. And it, uh, it painted such a, a marvelous picture of what a magician was like. I remember Brother Shadow had something in the Linking Ring one time, talking about the shows he used to do out in the park. And it was that same kind of idea, uh, that, that the character of the magician went so deep that the audience was shown just a little glimpse of what was going on there. But there was so much texture, so much detail underneath that, that anyone watching knew that they were missing pieces of the story. Uh, and and I just uh, it's it's like Tolkien just just like I said before I think that's such a a huge deal about bizarre magic the way it's explored uh, and the way I think it was intended it's just uh, the the depth and texture that's possible in magic that is just so rarely achieved today. I I totally agree I I think that a lot of his Creations and writing were like those tapestries we see on the wall, where they were not finished; they were transparent and uh, ghostly, and there was much more than met the eye. Um, the practitioner was named that because he didn't want to use terms like wizard or conjurer or magician. Uh, he was a practitioner who who lived this life, and he was a full living character to Gene, and. Um, he did keep many things concealed, which is why uh, he so wanted the trilogy to come out, to see the, the truly dark side of the practitioner, not the gray side that we have, but a, a part that was frightening, terrifying maybe, and then the whole redemptive side, uh, the, the white side. And uh, he was a very real personage to Gene, uh, a living being who really didn't admit to being 
magical, but profoundly was. So I, I think you're right there. Um, there are some magicians that try to live their magic 24-7, and I think that that carries off into your performances. Uh, you then become more real uh, to your audiences. If you believe deeply in your magic, uh, not pressing the button or doing the slight, that if you believe that the magic is really, really happening, then it is for your audience. Well, I will say that for myself, one thing that happened as I as I stumbled into the the dark forest of bizarre magic uh, and found out that it was only dark for a little ways, the glade comes pretty quickly, uh, <laughs> that uh, I had as a mainstream magician, set aside a lot of my personal interest in the paranormal and things like that uh, because it was a little too weird for the room. Uh, there was uh, there was a certain line with magic, and, and it was okay to to sort of cross that with a little bit of interest. But but you were you were supposed to pretty much stay in I guess what Eugene Berger calls the laughter and applause area. And when I discovered Bizarre Magic, it reopened that closet of, of my fascination with the paranormal, which I'd begun to pursue a lot more um, seriously. Uh, and I find that those things feed each other now, that, that my paranormal interests show me things that I should be relating to people using special effects, and that the things that the, the questions that come out of my uh, my uh, entertainment uh, dig me further into mythology and legends and beliefs and and practices that people have, and people can tell that I'm not kidding around about some of these things. That I really that for me it is real on a certain level. Um, and uh, that's that's such a, a huge, huge difference between bizarre and mainstream magic, at least from my own experience. What is what is your take on the difference between a bizarre magician and a mainstream magician, or is there one? Um, I, I don't know if there is one. In uh, Gene's case. Some of his things were uh, very, very spooky and disturbing, and uh, you really wanted to run rather than watch it or read it. And then other things were so frivolous, like like those toys and little tops and Cracker Jack things you see around us. Um, mm -hmm. His last book was uh, 2001, a year before he died, and it was called Merlin Unmasked, the most important book of this century or any other. A shocking expose <laughs> by from another planet points, and uh, it was no text. It was his wonderful cartoons, and there were maybe oh, I guess um, a hundred maybe cartoons of Merlin doing terrible things. Um, supposedly the the real Merlin. Um, there's one where he's having a uh, sword fight. And uh, his sword is a card sword. So every time he hits the other guy's sword, bunches of cards fly out. You know, very <laughs> irreverent. Um, and uh, there's, they're almost like um, 
Jane Wilson or Gary Larson in, in some of their darkness, and yet they're incredibly funny. Um, instead of a magician producing a dove, Merlin waves his wand and he produces a fried chicken. And uh, <laughs> there's a, a fakir on top of his Indian rope, and Merlin gives a gesture, and the rope falls down, and of course the fakir goes tumbling. So, uh, very funny, very irreverent. And that's juxtaposed these other things that uh, were born out of his uh, loneliness and uh, unhappiness and poverty at, at the end of his life. He was able to laugh and cry at the same time. And I think that that's intrinsic in storytelling magic and theatrical magic. I think we have to touch people. I don't think bizarre magic has to be you know, Lovecraftian or um, about seances. It, what it does have to do, in my opinion, is touch people profoundly, whether it's to tears or laughter or fear or hope. And uh, that's what Bizarre Magic has become for me. And it certainly was that uh, from all my connection with Gene Points. He uh, embodied that. And uh, that's a, a lot of what I tried to uh, write about in my book. As I said, there were a handful of people in my life that, uh, really were mentors to me and profoundly affected my thinking and beliefs about magic. And um, e Even other than the chapter about him, I think there's a lot of uh, residual lessons that he taught me in the book. I think we live in a very, very difficult time where, uh, like never before with computer and television, we're bombarded with violent images uh, something can happen around the world, and suddenly in all its blood and gore and glory, it's on our screen. And uh, we're living in a, in a brutal time of brutal politics, brutal business, uh, just a lot of fear. And if someone can come into a theater and for 40 minutes or an hour, just that time, believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy again, uh, it's such a relief, and I think that engenders hope and when they walk out of the theater their their shoulders are a little straighter and hopefully maybe they're able to enter the next day and um see some of the brightness among some of the pain i'd like to ask a few questions um based on the conversation that we've been having and uh I, i'm going to open it up to you and eugene uh, if Eugene has something to say, uh, I know that we'd like to hear it. Uh, but if uh, if he wants to just pass it all on to you, then that's fine too. We'll we'll let you interpret there. Okay. Um, and uh, I need to adjust myself on this couch. It's starting to do something slightly obscene. Uh, yeah, you're sinking into it too. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's always best to move around the cave a little bit. Um, it was so aptly named the cave. You see how dim and dark it is in here, and, and it's it in is. the corner of the courtyard. Not a lot of sun gets in here. Um, we we can stroll into the bedroom. You can you can actually uh, sit on this kingly bed, which is so incongruous with the rest of the place. And in here, there's a lot more of Jean's art. Right there on the wall was my favorite painting. It was a ship being tossed and torn in a storm with many waves, and within each wave. There was a drowning, dying face facing the horror mm. of death. Uh, and they, you almost didn't see it unless you looked very closely at the waves. And uh, 
I, I desperately wanted that painting, but uh, it wasn't to be. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you for just a moment before you go on to your question, because uh, Eugene sent many of his friends his block prints, and mm -hmm. uh, they were some were magical, some were uh, from tale fairy tales or, or myths, and I put notices on the Shadow Digest and uh, Magic Cafe that I he left me quite a stack of them, and I was offering them to people. I am down to very few, but I do have some, and frankly, I don't know what to do with them. So uh, for the limited time that I have some, if uh, someone wants to write me at my uh, email through uh, my website, spellbinderentertainment.com, and if I have any, uh, I'll be happy to tell them how to send me a self-addressed envelope and get the rest of those into the world, which I know is what uh, Eugene would have wanted. Okay, yeah, and... and uh I'd like to talk to you about that later because I'd I'd love to have one of those to to frame and and put uh well put right up in front of me while I'm doing Dragon Skull Radio to to remember. Great. Um, one of the things that I um, I am trying to understand is I came into bizarre magic later than some people. I, I was aware of it as it was sort of in its movement, but I was still sort of struggling with my own ideas of what I thought I needed to be as a magician and, and you know, mostly trying to figure out how to be a, a working professional. And uh, some of the concepts of Bizarre at that time were just... I, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready for them. Uh, I just did not have the maturity... Uh, at that point to appreciate what was going on there. So I've come to it late, and I'm involved with BizarreMagic.net. I'm on there. Uh, I'm on the Shadow Digest in its electronic form, uh, and I participate as best I can. This year I uh, was one of the editors for the Grimoire and actually massaged uh, a great number of those articles in there uh, with my own hands. Um uh, and uh, I, I contribute as best I can, but there's this sense that I get from people that, oh, you missed it. You know, it was it was really cool. There was a lot of awesome stuff going on, but it's it's all kind of gone now. I mean, just looking around this place, uh, to me, this, I mean, yes, it's a little weird, it's a little creepy, um, but. But this is this is what a wizard's home should be, and I, I hate to think that this is my only opportunity to have a real experience in the bizarre magic world. I don't like to think that it's all passed on. Has it passed on? Did I miss it? Well, let, let Gene answer that. Let, let, let's see if he'll he'll type us an answer. Oh, well, it's not Eugene. It, it's Madame Grudznoya. Um, <laughs> let me get a minute to interpret this. Okay. Would it help to read it out loud? Yeah. You stupid, silly men, I swack you in your nasty head and put curse on you. How dare you say this art is dead? Is not dead, not even sleeping. It is alive. 
um, well, I have to agree with her. Um, it's changed, and it's changing, but all good things do change. If they don't, that's when they die. That's when they suffocate. And um, I, I think our generation and the next generation are, are defining and broadening what bizarre magic is. And there's a dark and a light to that. Um, there are people that grab a tarot deck and then do a four-ace trick and think it's bizarre magic because they use a tarot deck. And, and that's absolutely not in the in the genre. And there are other people who tell a long, wandering, aimless story and then follow it up with a, a little fizzle of a magic effect. And that's not bizarre magic either. But then there are others that are, are innovating and working and doing uh, absolutely magnificent things. Um, David London, who's uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, is doing incredibly innovative things with Bizarre Magic. Um, he does a whole show that's based around a loaf of Wonder Bread, and that is Wonder Bread, which we don't think of. Uh, it, it feeds you wonder. Uh, he has another piece about thinking outside of a box, where this box turns inside out and right side out. And he's doing this performance art that is performance art, but it's also theatrical magic. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, uh, there's a young man, uh, Jonathan Forst, in Florida, who's uh, doing that. There's these great people with the uh, ICBM. Uh, I don't want to leave anyone else, but uh, Daniel Greenwolf and uh, Vlad. And uh, these guys are, are looking at this and trying to look at the future in a crystal ball rather than the past. And I think that's what Greg mm-hmm. Noya was saying there. Uh, it's morphing and changing. I don't think you missed out on anything. I think the important thing is for the people who are entering it now, don't cry over the spilt milk. Don't feel bad that, you know, punks and uh, points and um, Brother Shadow and... All, all those people aren't with us anymore. Charles Cameron, go reinvent it. Look at what they did and do them one better. Uh, I, I don't go on to Shadow Digest very often because there's, there seems to be a handful of people contributing, and um, there's a dialogue and information, but it's not that uh, improv and interaction and plotted, planned insanity and guerrilla theater it was, and maybe it shouldn't be. I think the last of that was Larry White's um, Inventing Devil of a Bar and Pub, and and that book's also for my publisher, Leaping Lizards. Marvelous book where we created all these wild characters that interacted and played around in this pub in Boston. And that was Larry, in honor of Gene, reinventing uh, what, what story magic was on the digest and then in the book. And, uh, I'd like to see the people on Shadow Digest reinvent themselves again by getting out of the box and being wild and crazy and honoring the dust bunnies bigger than tumbleweed and honoring uh, the cardboard cutout of Xena that's next to the uh, mummy's hand. Does that make sense? (laughs) It makes sense, but I think think I'm going to disagree with you slightly there. Oh. In that I I think that one of the things that, that is missing between what we see as the current generation and what occurred uh, with, shall we say, the, the elders of Bizarre Magic 
um, is is a certain level of playfulness. It seemed to me, and and you actually used this phrase when we were talking about having uh, wh- whether I would be able to meet you here, uh, it is is that it was like a bunch of kids in a big giant sandbox, and there was a lot of play that went on, and. I have a technical background. I know the importance of play in in even the most serious of creativity. And it seems that, that right now we have people who are looking at how to make things commercial and how to sell books and DVDs and things and lecture tours and all of that. And And I don't feel that same playfulness that created the the fertile ground that grew what what was done by that particular group of people. And I, I don't I don't think that, that we can copy the play that you did. Ours is gonna to have to be a different form of play, but but there should be play, especially on something like the Shadow Digest, when when it's it's just us girls, so to speak. <laughs> you know? Uh, I think that, that that playful spirit is desperately needed for the future of bizarre magic, and and, and I lament that it's not uh, it's not pursued as much. It, it's there, but it's not pursued as much. Um, I, I'm not sure why. If people are are afraid of it or um, don't want to be accused of having a pratfall, pratfall. Um, it's hard to earn a living in this business. Uh, Eugene did fortune fortune telling at the Gypsy Tea Kettle Room because uh, they gave him three meals a day for what he called my gift of babble. Um, he put himself uh, on You Asked For It, the old television show, twice. Uh, he did what he needed to as a young man to uh, earn his living. Um, if you look... My, my friends blackmail me with this. I have a photo of me in the 1970s, and I'm wearing a powder blue uh, tuxedo jacket with a black tuxedo jumpsuit. Most people don't even know what that is. A very ruffled nice. shirt and a bright red cummerbund and bow tie. Um, nice. And that was the the you know dress of the day, and I was doing uh, one of those horrible Grant Squared circles. You know, producing tons of streamers, and that was magic for me. How, how was the and, hair? In the uh, oh yeah, well I, I don't have much hair, but it, it was frightening. And <laughs> when I discovered theatrical magic, I'd been an actor for many years, and my my goal was to blend acting and theater with magic. And at first, I thought I was alone out there in the desert, and then I found things like uh, mystery school, and. Uh, Something there were other people out in the desert with me as lost in the desert sometimes as I was, but every once in a while finding this wonderful oasis of magic. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be doing this form of performing now. No one's ever going to hire me again. And no one was more surprised than me when I found out that uh, corporate CEOs and CFOs and uh, business people, bankers and lawyers, wanted this and wanted to see it as much as I wanted to do it. And it's not an easy path to uh, be both commercial and true to the art. But uh, I think 
a bunch of people strive to that. Uh, Eugene Berger certainly does. Jeff McBride does. And and we're all successful to some degree or another, not necessarily you know even 80% of the time, but we work for that. And I think there is an enormous sense of playfulness, as you said. Um, Bob Neal talks about this in his books a lot, that uh, magic is about play. And uh, for me, a Bible is Magic and Meaning by... Uh, Robert Neal and Eugene Berger, which just came out mm-hmm. for a new edition a year or so ago. And it talks about all this, and, and they argue about all this, because you can spend your lifetime arguing and never reach a uh, consensus. Uh, I try to be a little uh, argumentative in my book uh, to slap people around and get them to think. Uh, the underlying theme is about bringing my audience from a left-brain place, which is the logical, puzzle-solving technical thinking part of our brain to the right brain place where uh, we're open to believing in wonder and enchantment and magic again. And I think part of the theatrical or bizarre magician's job is to shift the audience from their mundane, how is that done day into, oh my God, how is that humanly possible uh, place in their mind. And uh, that takes the playfulness and that takes also hard work, dedication, and imagination. Do you think magicians get too wrapped up in magic and lose track of all the other art forms that could be helping them? Uh, yeah. Um, you obviously read the book. Um, <laughs> a little bit. I think, Not all of it. I'm still think, working on it. But, uh, but, yeah. And I won't say I think. I know. Uh, magicians are about the only art form that try to do it all by themselves. They try to be all things. They're their booking agent, their marketer, their set designer, their makeup designer, their prop designer, their costume designer, their director, their lighting man, their sound man, their coach, their script writer, and that isn't the way art works. It's a collaborative process. Uh, Even Da Vinci didn't paint all his Da Vinci's. He had students that he guided that he'd say, okay, you paint the background, I'll paint the front part. Um, A magician needs a team. You know, it's that it takes a village. I don't think you should go out on stage without a coach or director. Uh, you need someone, if, even if you write your own material, which I write a great deal of mine, you need someone to go, oh, no, 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 that's bad. And how about if you did it this way, or did you think of that, or the grammar is wrong, which Eugene used to do for me a great deal. I'd send him a piece I was so proud of, and he'd send it back with uh, all these nasty comments that made the piece much, much shorter and much, much better. Uh, so I, I do think we as conjurers, wizards, magicians need be, to become more collaborative, more open to listening to other people. Find the experts, the expert in marketing, the expert in uh, costuming. And uh, right now I'm working with these two very talented performers here in uh, the Bay Area. Uh, they have a dream show they've been working on for 10 years, and I saw it. And there were some wonderful things, but... I didn't feel there was a gelling. I didn't feel there was uh, glue holding it together the way it could be. It had a lot of potential, and there was nothing uh, that couldn't be fixed and improved. And we're working together in a wonderfully collaborative way now, and the piece is coming to life. They're coming to life the way uh, they say they never did before. And I'm so proud watching where they're going with just a little bit of a nudge. But you have to have those outside people to give you that nudge. 
Well, and I think for many performers that is an incredible challenge. Um, I, I think about what you were saying, describing all the different elements that go into putting on a good show. And in most shows there that, that one would audition for or would be involved in, uh, there, there are a number of jobs already set up that the producer has, has arranged to pay for. Uh, and and you are going to fill one of those roles. Uh, the show's already been written. It's already been taken to a certain point before you even get involved as a costume designer, actor, lighting guy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the magic show, typically, there's there's not a, a magic... There's not something saying, gosh, we just need someone to step in here and do the magic tricks. We've got everything else all worked out. Uh, typically, the magician has to be a self-starter on that. So, uh, one of the things that comes to mind, uh, there's, a, um, there's a series of books and DVDs and such called Make Your Own Damn Movie. Are you familiar with those at all? I'm not familiar. I've heard of them. There's a, there's a guy uh, who has been making uh, classics like The Toxic Avenger <laughs> and stuff like that. Um that uh, the, the uh, studio uh, that uh, they have is um, is called um, uh, Troma Films, and uh, the guy who has uh, who owns Troma Films and who has done all this, his name is Lloyd Kaufman, and I saw him speak at a haunted uh, attractions convention, or not? It was a, it was a horror movie convention, is what it was. Uh, some number of years ago, and he was encouraging people to go make art and and to help lead them to understand, okay, look, here are all the things that need to be done, and if you can't get them done, get someone to do them. And here here is how you, you cajole, connive, and sometimes pay when you have to people to do these things to help get it all done. Uh, and I've seen things like that for magic or for, for, for music, for for movies and things like that, kind of giving people an idea of all the moving parts and how how you put people together in sort of a little rascal's way to put on a show. In magic, I don't really get that feeling. Most of my dealings with uh, uh, magicians and, and different kinds of groupings, I mean, as aside from my experience at ICBM and such, uh, has been uh, a, a sort of um, reluctance to to uh, to point people on things like that um, because the competition is is a bigger concern than getting everybody to do better art. How do well, you, you respond to, have, to that? And, and Eugene, if he has anything to say, you have to have something to compete with uh, before mm -hmm. you, you can be competitive. And that can start with the old Mickey Rooney, uh, Judy Garland, let's put on a show, let's get out the costumes in the attic. It can be as simple as that. And uh, first you maybe list out all the effects you love and have and are actually good at, and then you put them in some order and see if there's some logic to that order. Then you start uh, creating not patter but presentations, whether they're uh, silent or story-based, whatever. And then give them to a trusted friend and say, does this make sense? Is this art? Is this me practicing my craft? Or is this, you know, garbage? Uh, and you need people like Gene. He was brilliant, 
and caring and compassionate, uh, very real, very human human being. Uh, yeah, he had extravagances and there was self-mockery, but his sharing and giving was remarkable and, and humbling. Uh, he would help anyone to make their magic better if that's what they were committed to. Um, and, you know, no author makes money writing a book. Uh, and I hope it doesn't sound egotistical to say that's why I wrote my book. Anyone uh, who's read it can email me or call me, and we'll talk about magic for hours and hours. Some people have actually done that. And you have to start from a place of caring about the art, caring about people and humility, and being willing to give the way people gave to you. And it's a it's a process. Um, I get very annoyed with people say, oh, I bought this trick at the magic shop on Thursday and I'm going to perform it on Saturday. That's not the way art works. Uh, it's taken me sometimes three years before a piece is ready to put into a public show because I have to find all these people. And, and like the Judy Garland, you do need the... Uh, willingness to pay sometimes, or just barter. Hey, uh, I will clean your house if you'll help me polish my script. You know, I'll uh, take care of your garden if uh, you'll design me a costume. And, well, and, uh, and I think it's imperative, personally, I think it is imperative for you to get into the habit of exchanging value for value when you're working with people. And and when you're when you're finding people who who have things that you don't have, uh, you should you should assume that you're going to be putting at least as much in as they did, even if they tell you to pay it forward. That you you have to owe somebody for this benefit that you're getting, and uh, it just seems like in some ways we've. Well, I say we. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, but it just seems to be a difficult thing to achieve in a magician environment. And it maybe is that way everywhere, and I just see it in the magician environment. But that that seems to me to be an obstacle that needs to be overcome. Uh, everybody needs help. Everyone needs to be helping each other, especially if we want an art like bizarre magic to survive and yea thrive. Uh, Michelangelo's bread was put on the table by a very strict Catholic church, and he was under their thumb. Uh, do you suppose it was easy for him to create, out of a hunk of marble, the David, which is one of the most remarkable, alive sculptures I've ever seen in my entire life. I've never seen a replica that touches the real one. He, it looks like he's about to breathe and move. But it was an impossible task that couldn't be done, especially under the thumb of the, the Catholic Church uh, he found a piece of marble that no one else would touch no one would go near and he saw the Pieta in it because mm -hmm. in the Pieta he could avoid the, the fissure in the uh, marble would have made it shatter art isn't easy and if, mm -hmm. if you don't want the art uh, if you don't want to do it as art get out of the kitchen uh, don't do it people are paying it forward. Uh, Carl creating Dragon Skull, it's an immeasurable gift to uh, the bizarre magic community because it shows who's there now, who was there, what our roots are. Um, there's, You could spend your lifetime just exploring what Carl gave on Dragon Skull. And then Indeed. you've stepped in and brought it to the next level with these radio programs. Um, 
and after you, somebody else will do something. Uh, but some of this is hidden, but none of it is lost, in my opinion. I think uh, Jean would agree. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, and, and you know, in some ways, I, I guess I was playing devil's advocate a little bit because, obviously, you know, I, I I do think there are good things going on, but I think there's also uh, there's also a, a deal of... Uh, I, I think that we could have more clarity and do a better job of guiding the the next round of people uh and, and dealing with those that uh that don't seem to know what to do because I know that for myself every time I've uh, found someone who you know say just just never seems to be able to do a trick halfway decently and spent time with them just really talking about where they're coming from and what they're trying to achieve uh, there's always progress that occurs there. They they really want to have progress. They just they just don't know what to do, and they don't know who to ask, and they don't know how to ask. And and you know uh, the 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 whole the whole stream of etiquette. I mean, now that it's so easy to get magic secrets, and and it's so easy to um, uh, to sell magic secrets. Um, it just seems to be harder to get uh, that that rhythm that makes people want to uh, uh, want to take the time they need and take the steps they need to get where they are ready for. And I hope that we'll be using our resources, uh, old guard, new guard, guard yet to come, to help shape the community and the art. Uh, in a positive way. Uh, I don't think magic anymore should even be about secrets because the secrets are out there. Uh, I do yeah. the Professor's Nightmare in almost every show, and there's two versions of what I do in my book, and it has nothing to do with this simple trick that has been in almost anyone's magic uh, kit as a child. It has to do with the meaning. Um, mm-hmm. And we shouldn't care about secrets anymore, but Wonder and enchantment and true magic. I recently uh, was introduced to uh, a magician called the Great Lafayette, who uh, was a contemporary of Chung Ling Su and uh, Goldman and DeCulta um, in that golden age of magic uh, when Carter and Keller were around. And uh, I think he would have been better known if it hadn't been that he uh, died quite early uh, in his uh, about 40. And here's a quote from 1906 from him. He was a curmudgeon like I was, or am. This is 1906, mind you. And he's talking about the magicians of his time. He says, they are Philistines as far as the magical art is concerned. I don't want to know anything about their unnatural moves and unrehearsed slights. Their lack of knowledge regarding magic and theater appall me. Timing and misdirection not forgetting presentation, are part of a language utterly foreign to them. I ignore these men to whom the only magic words are how much at a magic shop. It hurts my artistic (laughs) sense to see magic debased by magical ignoramuses. Uh, State, my friend, Mr. David Devant, refers to as magical indigestion. Now, he felt that way in 1906. 
we're a century later, and people are still feeling the same way. But everywhere there are, uh, as Auden said, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchanger messages. And I think places like uh, ICBM and the Shadow Digest and uh, Dragon Skull are, are, and Mystery School, while they existed, are, are, were these ironic points of light that flashed out in a dark night and uh, are illuminating magic. Uh, the people we're talking about, the fact that Gene Points is alive in this room, even though he passed away in 2002, uh, show the importance of where we've come from and where we're going. And I'm very hopeful about magic, uh, very hopeful. Um, not when I watch the TV specials, but when I see people uh, locally, we have Christian Cadigal, who's just appeared on the scene and is doing incredible performances. Well, um, did, did you, did you, what's going on? Oh, um, Eugene's saying enough about you, what about me? Uh-oh. Uh, Wait, what was that? Where are you going, Walt? Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm heading for the door. Uh, I, I, follow me. I'll be right oh, behind no. you. <laughs> that was a crystal ball. Uh, um, bye, bye, Eugene. Um, thanks for the... Uh, thank, oh, wait. Walt. Um, Walt, the, the, door's, the door's locked. Um, is, is there a... been listening to Dragon Skull Radio, created and produced by Chris Walden. Tune in each month for more fascinating conversation about the world of bizarre magic. Special thanks to Carl Bartoni and the Dragon Skull website. Be sure to visit at dragonskull.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook. Join us next time for Dragon Skull Radio.